The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. After five years of transformation, of happy and difficult times, of exceptional crisis too, on this day of April 24, 2022, a majority of us have made the choice to trust me to preside over our republic for the next five years. Hello and welcome to our special coverage of the French election. As Emmanuel Macron becomes the first French president to be re-elected in 20 years, we are live from Paris with insight and analysis. Here are your headlines. Emmanuel Macron defeats his far-right rival with 58.5% of the vote, but acknowledges deep public divisions and tells CNBC now is the time to get to work. Obviously, I'm very happy, but now I'm committed to deliver for France, Europe and multilateralism. National rally leader Marine Le Pen concedes defeat but hails a stronger showing than five years ago and pledges to redouble efforts ahead of legislative elections in June. The ideas that we represent are reaching a peak on the evening of the second round of the presidential election. With more than 43% of the vote, tonight's result represents a resounding victory in itself. Uh, on the markets, U.S. futures are lower after the Dow suffers its worst one-day loss since 2020. This amid a four-week losing streak. Uh, earnings taking center stage with Alphabet, Amazon and Apple all reporting this week. And Asian equities also sinking with Beijing racing to contain an urgent COVID outbreak whilst the death toll in Shanghai triples, dimming prospects of lockdown measures loosening. French President Emmanuel Macron has won a second term in office, comfortably defeating his rival, the far-right candidate Marine Le Pen, in yesterday's runoff. Macron scored over 58.5% of the vote against Le Pen's 41.5%, according to the French Interior Ministry. A clear victory, but lower than the support he received five years ago. In his victory speech, Macron promised change will come as he sought to make amends with those who did not vote for him. I also know that many French people voted for me tonight, not because they support my ideas, but to block the far right. I also want to thank them and tell them that their vote places me under an obligation for the years to come. From now on, I am no longer the candidate of one camp, but the president of all. And I know that for several of our fellow citizens that have chosen the far right today, the anger that has led them to that choice must also be met with a response. That will be my obligation and that of those who surround me. The president spent a little bit less time on stage uh, versus five years ago. He was very much on the ground meeting, greeting supporters. And I had the chance to catch up with the president last night after those preliminary results were announced. I asked him how he felt about the victory. Obviously, I'm very happy, but now I'm committed to deliver for France, Europe and multilateralism. 
Let's take a look at some of the market trades early on. It seems as though the market was very much pricing in a Macron victory, although with a much slimmer lead. The euro at this point is stable, so it seems to be more of a, a greenback story this morning. But uh, stable is in some ways a win for France at this point. If you look at some of the market commentators there, if there had been a change, then you may have seen a sell-off in the euro. So stable it is at this point. And a quick look at yields as well. Don't forget, we often see politics here in Europe express through the bond markets, but those yields also stable. Most have been marching higher, though. We've seen that from the German bonds to OATs here in France, that there is a link to what we've seen on US Treasury markets, so they have been marching higher in recent days. Well, turnout stood at 72%, according to the French Interior Ministry, with 28% of registered voters reportedly abstaining. That is the highest rate in over 50 years for a second round vote. What is key now is President Macron has promised to get back to work with his focus now on the legislative elections. His party, La République en March, is facing a tough battle in the upcoming parliamentary vote in June in another face-off with Marine Le Pen's national rally, as well as Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who has his mind set on becoming the country's left-wing prime minister. To me, what was quite stunning was in the speech last night, this victory speech, where Emmanuel Macron very much picked up on some of the dissent. He made a nod to the fact that it was, there was tactical voting going on, that people had turned out to support him on the day, but not necessarily his ideas. And it did seem to be a much more humble approach from Macron and all of the cabinet ministers that had a chance to catch up with last night, Bruno Le Maire as well. The message was that they had listened. And you could see even his approach when he was greeting supporters. He wanted to be seen as in touch on the ground with people here in France. Absolutely. That was really striking. It was not a triumphalist tone at all last night compared to 2017. He seemed very humble, as you say, saying, I've heard uh, when he, in his speech when he said, look, uh, this is not a continuation of the first mandate. Things will be different. I thought that was really key in his speech. Uh, very short speech as well, just 10 minutes. It was, wasn't it? Exactly. So you, had this, you didn't have this party atmosphere of 2017. Certainly a relief. I think you'd feel it in the air for both the supporters and his team. But that's right, you're right. I think a very humble and a very different tone coming from Emmanuel Macron. I'll just pick up on that emotion because I caught up with Macron at the end of the first round of the election too, as well as last night. And this is a man who was so composed at all the international events we've spoken to him at. He is very much on message and very calm and collected. He knows what he wants to say. But he seemed visibly shaken on both occasions, last night and two weeks ago. I, I don't know whether the campaign has taken its toll, it's been somewhat exhausting, going around to various different parts of the electorate, trying to win back support, but also tackling these challenges around the war with Ukraine. I mean, it's a monumental events for Europe at this point, but he did seem a little bit fraught to me. And he probably got a bit of a scare before the first round because we saw these polls getting very tight. We were within the margin of error. Of course, it must have been a relief to see the numbers yesterday because they were higher than the last poll we had on Friday night. Certainly, he did better than expected, but he must have had a fright before the first round. And that's why we saw him campaigning so heavily between the two rounds, a completely different Macron between the first round and the second, and the second round, when he was shaking hands, kissing babies, all that <laughs> sort of stuff that a politician should do that he didn't do in the first round. Of course, they said, the geopolitical events stopped him from doing that. He was busy with the war in Ukraine, etc. But maybe there was a little bit of complacency because some of his polls, four or five weeks before the first round, he was very high. 
and suddenly things got tighter and tighter and tighter and then it was too late to really campaign and hit the ground. So I'm sure they got a little bit scared there. Oh, we certainly had plenty of handshaking last night. Uh, also a very signature long, slow walk from Macron and his wife, Brigitte. Uh, this was uh, through underneath the Eiffel Tower to the staging. But I think what also jumped out to me was that they had brought with them a lot of young supporters. And that had been one of the concerns that they'd lost the support of the young demographic here in France. So I thought that messaging was quite strong and you did see a, a lot of young supporters on the ground. But, you know, what comes next is a big question for France. Parliamentary elections are around the corner. Nobody wants a, a lame duck government. They want a government that can push forward with reforms. And, of course, there is a challenge in five years' time. And it felt like this was a government acknowledging that challenge, that if they don't heal some of the dissent, they don't tackle some of the discord from the left and the right, that maybe... There will be a monumental change for France down the track, particularly if the far right regroups, which is what we think they will do, right? Well, you could say the tough work starts now for Emmanuel Macron because, yes, he won this election and better than expected, you could say. But the real challenge is now because I say in seven weeks we have the first one of the legislative election. He had a massive majority in 2017. It's very difficult for him potentially to get any majority at all this time around. You have all these political forces at play here, all these dynamics that are playing out. I mean, for Marine Le Pen, it would be extremely difficult to get a lot of MPs as well. They have six, seven MPs at the moment. So there again, there's a democratic issue that the person that got 42% of the votes in the presidential election might have very small numbers of MPs in the National Assembly. So you have all these conversations starting now in France. And then, of course, on the side of that, you have still the war in Ukraine going on. You mm. still have the impacts of all the sanctions. You have all these economic things going on. And Emmanuel Macron, that wants to pick up some of his reforms and the pension reform that, you know, is extremely unpopular. So that's a lot of challenges ahead for him uh, in the next few months. I wonder how far he can push that agenda, because when I spoke to a lot of the cabinet ministers last night, it felt as though they had already delivered a lot of change. And of course, the, the war in Ukraine, uh, one of the big concerns is just how far can Europe lean on uh, Russia when it comes to sanctions? And I spoke to a spokesperson on European affairs and effectively they want to push forward and maybe eventually look at the energy situation, putting that into the mix. But if you think about the, the cost here in France, the cap on energy prices, that's been very expensive for the government. Also trying to offer rebate to the petrol pump. That's something the government's delivered. They spoke a lot about what they had done. The question is how much more they can do, particularly if sanctions are ratcheted up. And I think it's a very difficult equation. It's pointing out even even though inflation is running lower than across the rest of the Eurozone at about 5.1% here versus much higher 7% numbers across Europe, it still is creating a lot of pressure on French voters. So I think there is a worry that if they go too far too quickly, whether it's on sanctions regimes or whether it's domestically on a reform agenda, that they will just lose even more voters over the next five years. And they know that. The big word that we hear from the Macron the Macron camp is consultation and doing things with people on board, talk to them, not just plough through with reforms like they did maybe in 2017. You know, when a, when a president is elected, they have this honeymoon period. And you had it in 2017, and that's the time to push for reform. That's the time when you can push through maybe some more difficult measures. This time around, there's no honeymoon. He knows he's straight into really the trenches. And I think they're very aware of that. And they're going to be very cautious in their approach, that's for sure. But it was interesting to hear from the Le Pen camp. She came out very quickly with her concession speech. Uh, but if you listen to her, she was talking as if it was a victory for the far right. Because, of course, they did score 42%, which is the highest that the far right has ever scored in the presidential election. And this is what she said last night. En dépit de deux semaines de méthode déloyale, 
In spite of two weeks of unfair, brutal and violent methods similar to those that the French people undergo on a daily basis, the ideas that we represent are reaching a peak on the evening of the second round of the presidential elections. With more than 43% of the votes, tonight's result represents a resounding victory in itself. And what was remarkable as well that we heard from Le Pen, but other political opponents, of course, were not in the second round of the election, but particularly Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who spoke himself straight after the result. And they talk, all of them, about the third round of this election. Of course, they talk about the legislative elections. We know that just seven weeks away, the first round of this election. And for Marine Le Pen, straight away, her concession speech was really the kickoff of that uh, campaign for the, the legislative elections. That's why she said in her speech that the battle starts now. Tonight we launch the great election battle for the legislatives. I will lead this battle with Jordan Bardella, with all of those who had the courage to oppose Emmanuel Macron in the second round. In short, with all of those who have the nation at heart. The national rally will work to unite all those from wherever they may come who want to gather their forces against the policies of Emmanuel Macron in order to present or support candidates everywhere in your constituency, in metropolitan France, overseas and in constituencies abroad. I invite you to support them with all your strength and from June 12th to vote for them. So it was Marie Le Pen positioning herself already like the head of the opposition. But that's exactly what Jean-Luc Mélenchon did as well last night, just after the result. They both want to place themselves as the person that can be the opposition, potentially even the prime minister. Jean-Luc Mélenchon said, vote for Les Insoumis, his party in majority for the legislative, and then I will be prime minister and I will keep President Macron in check. So you have all this battle already starting. And it's really extraordinary that you see this political recomposition still going on in France, that political bang that happened in 2017 when Emmanuel Macron came on the French political scene. The, the traditional parties nowhere to be seen, but they still have a lot of MPs. They're still very local. Some people love their local MPs. So they could actually have a better result than we saw in the presidential election. While Rassemblement National, very few MPs, only six at the moment. It's a two-round election. They could be blocked for getting a lot of MPs. So a lot of uncertainty of what the, the legislative election could look like and that means what power really the, mm -hmm. the Emmanuel Macron could have as a president to push forward his program. So no change in the presidency but there could be plenty of change on the ground and also in key cabinet positions. Now later in the program we will be speaking to Mikola Markusson who is the group chief economist at Sokgen about the economic impact of President Macron's re-election. And we'll also be joined by Fabrice Le Sachet, Vice President and Spokesperson for MEDEF, to break down the results at 8.30 CET. And just a reminder to our audience, for more on the election coverage, you can visit our website at CNBC. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. So, Steve, monumental changes here, potentially on the ground, but still some continuity as well with Emmanuel Macron. Excellent work. Thank you very much indeed for that, Karen and Charlotte. I'm just wondering whose is the, uh, the mug in the middle of the two computers. That coffee's going to be cold now. Maybe uh, Melania can get you some more. Uh, right, let us move on and take a look at these US markets. Enormous 
moves. I don't say that lightly. You know I don't go over the hyperbola too easily uh, on these markets, but it was virtually a crash on a lot of these indices uh, on Friday, just adding to what has been a very, very difficult time. Four weeks of declines. And let's face it, it's the same old issues uh, that are sending the markets down. There are concerns about COVID in China. There are concerns about the war in Ukraine. But there are concerns primarily at the moment about growth, about inflation, about containment of that inflation, and ergo valuations of some very overpriced stocks in the eyes of some investors on the back of all those worries. We saw the Dow falling 2.8% on Friday, 981 points. That is the biggest decline we've seen uh, since October 2020. Uh, it's the NASDAQ you need to look at. Although its declines were smaller in yesterday's session, Friday session, I should say, down 2.6%. The fact of the matter is for the week, it was much worse. Actually double the declines we saw uh, on the Dow, which brings back into focus that concern about technology stocks in a rising rate environment. What's that doing to future cash flow as well? Do you want to look at the session from Friday? Let's have a quick look at what the Dow did. So throughout the session, as it went on, we saw a swifter sell-off. There was very little support uh, intraday at the lower levels. Now, uh, some of these markets are down dramatically. For instance, the Nasdaq conclusively at the moment in bear market territory. The Russell 2K in bear market territory. And therein, in those two indices, you can see this isn't just about technology. It isn't just about small caps. It is about across corporate America worries about what higher financing means. And of course, a more hawkish Fed uh, will mean that the cost of refinance a huge amount of corporate debt going forward uh, will be very expensive. And the fact, let's be honest about it, bonds don't look bad value compared to where they have been. If you're looking for absolute yields rather than yields compared with real costs of inflation, uh, they're the highest levels we've seen in a long time. I'll get to that in a moment. First of all, let me show you technology stocks uh, and the drubbing that some of these names, some of the names got actually on Friday. But the good thing is, this board isn't showing you that. This board is showing you the type. This board is actually showing you Netflix aside. I mean, I think we all saw what happened on Netflix uh, last week as well with a, a, a precipitous decline in that stock as well. Uh, it was over... It was over $600 uh, on Friday. A uh, big part at its high in the last uh, couple of years, Netflix. But uh, 215 bucks is where that one is last trading. Uh, the rest of these, these are the big names, a lot of them reporting. The likes of Facebook, the likes of Apple, the likes of Amazon, actually doing Tesla, which has very calm results compared with Netflix, doing much, much better uh, than some of the peers throughout the rest of the NASDAQ. Uh, and the rest of the tech arena. Let's take a look at treasuries. And the exciting thing for some of you is, as I say, you saw a 3% handle at the highs on the 10-year on Friday. Look, you're going to get a hawkish Fed from now on in, or what their version of a hawkish Fed is. Let's be honest about it. There are some of those out there, some of us out there, who always thought trans, uh, transitory was a pile of, let me put it, a baloney. There you go. We always thought transitory was just ridiculous when we were seeing real inflation for, for, for real people across the board and the impact that may have on wages. Don't take my word for it. Take a look at the jolts. Two years now, 2.65. The five-year, 2.9%. Inversion there on the 5 to 10 uh, and indeed back at 2.9% for the 30 year as well. Let's have a look at the Asian indices. No Oz, it says on my screen. I think the Oz is in uh, Paris doing a fantastic job. But in terms of the Oz that we're talking about here uh, is the Asian indices. There is no Australian market today. That aside, we have some big declines on the Hang Seng down 2.8%, mirroring exactly what we saw on the Dow on Friday. Opening calls for European indices. 
uh, that were called lower. Actually, we didn't have a bad move uh, on some of these markets last week. Do you know the DAX and the CAC last week, what the declines were? There weren't any. It was about 0.1 of a percent. So we better catch up here. So when you look at the CAC down 72 points, actually that's an outperformance based pretty much on what my colleagues in Paris were saying there is I can continuity. You may not like Macron, you may like Macron, but what you are going to get is a continuity at the Elysee Palace as well. Uh, the DAX is getting the brunt of it though, down 243 points is the call from the spread betters. FTSE uh, down 100 points. Let's have a look at the futures. Uh, US futures, the uh, uh, minor decline. In fact, I would say that that's a bit of a rally compared with some of the levels we've seen uh, pre-market already today. But look, ladies and gentlemen, it's not just about the bigger picture. It's about individual companies as well. Uh, and uh, a very big and important company here in Europe is Philips, which has announced a 4% fall in first quarter sales, which came in at 3.9 billion euros. The Dutch health technology company announced it will increase prices in response to surging inflation. Increase prices, ladies and gentlemen. Again, pressure on clients, pressure on the end user. Let's speak to Franz van Houten, who is the CEO of Philips, a man that I've known Gosh, over a decade, Franz, we've been talking to you. And I've got to say, let's talk in the round at the moment before we go into the nitty gritty of your results as well. Do you think things have ever been tougher, given the huge number of factors that you're talking about already in your announcement today? You're quite right. There are a lot of moving parts and factors to take into account. But let's start with the customer. We uh, see continued demand from hospitals and consumers for the Philips Innovations. To unpack that a bit, we saw 5% order growth in the quarter, uh, which brings our order book to 30% higher than same time last year. Um, In-demand MRI scanners, image-guided therapy, uh, healthcare informatics, as uh, hospitals need to deal with more patients and also are uh, looking for productivity gains. At the same time, consumer demand was strong. We saw double-digit growth in oral care, and overall our personal health business uh, was able to grow by 8%. So I think that's the good news, and it sets us up well for the full year. Now, as you said, yes, there's a lot of moving parts, and we do see, of course, the continued effect of supply chain challenges. Um, We have people in Philips that are battling that every day. Uh, We came through that in a reasonable way in the first quarter, slightly ahead of uh, the guidance that we gave in January for Q1. Uh, So I'm not unhappy with that. Uh, We just need to do it again and again and again as we go into Q2 or Q3. Uh, And yeah, then with with China, you could say even risks uh, are potentially increasing. Friends, I've enjoyed watching your journey, the transformation. I've been to Eindhoven. I've seen the old sites. I've seen some of the new sites as well. But I guess what some shareholders want to know is why your shares aren't more counter-cyclical given everything that you've done to transform this company. And it's been a monumental effort over your decade plus in charge as well. But your shares have come down from around about 50 euros to 28 euros. Why aren't they more resilient given all those factors that you and I look at on a daily basis? Look, uh, 95% of Philips is performing uh, really well. I think everybody, the shareholders, the analysts are focused on our big recall in the sleep and respiratory area, which reflects about 5% of the company. Uh, We are in the middle of, uh, of a recall towards over 5 million patients. Um, 
in my book, we are progressing well with that recall. In the meantime, we have already produced over 2.2 million uh, units to support the patients out there. But it will take us the, the whole year to complete this uh, recall in a good way. And uh, I think th this is what is holding shareholders uh, back and is depressing the share price at this time. So, sorry, Franz, and, and I think we can have a healthy disagreement about that as well. The recall has been said back in January that it will cost 725 million euros as well. That doesn't work for me that 20 billion euros has come off the share price, give or take, on the back of a 750 million recall. Yeah, but uh, what I didn't mention, but is, is, is implicit that there, there, is, there is also uh, potential litigation that people need to um, are unable to estimate at this time. Uh, so I think that is creating an overhang um, and I leave it to the market to to judge, you know, how big that overhang should be. Um, I am laser focused on first completing the recall, uh, preparing ourselves very well for whatever litigation is coming to us. And in the meantime, you know, order intake is strong. Uh, revenues are coming through. We are able to to deal with the challenges on the supply chain, at least in the first quarter, that went reasonably well. Um, so we will come through this period. I'm convinced of that. I've nothing for, for respect for what you've been doing at um, your company for a long time as well. But Lisa Clive, analyst at Bernstein, said this was a management credibility issue, uh, saying the recall was a bit sloppy as well. Are you under pressure in your position as CEO, friends? As I said, you know, we are laser focused on on resolving the issue. And I feel very much encouraged by the confidence that our customers are giving us. They like our innovations uh, across the board, which translates in now already uh, a 12 months moving average order growth of 6%. And so I think by, by that standard, uh, it's going well. Uh, and I completely acknowledge that we need to get through this uh, recall and deal with the litigation so that that overhang on the share price uh, can be resolved. Let me just squeeze in one last point that you mentioned about the strong order book as well. How concerned are you that inflation and other factors are just going to erode your margin targets in the face of what we've discussed? I think inflationary pressures are very real uh, and we see that ranging from from labor to to shipping to components. Um, but inflationary pressures is something we can do, uh, uh, take actions on. And uh, on the one hand, we are having to raise prices to our customers. And on the other hand, uh, we can also still, as a large company, tighten the belt, uh, be more frugal on cost, and, and thereby find compensation uh, for the uh, kind of 2.5% inflation uh, that we are currently see coming through. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.